This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Tonic, heard Saturday afternoons at 1 and Sunday mornings at 11 on Zoomer Radio. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. It's about how we carry ourselves. It's about how we stand. It's about how we look at each other. It's about how we walk in the world. Not necessarily just what our physical appearance is. I really feel that it's about how we project ourselves rather than anything about what we actually look like. Welcome to the new and expanded 60-minute version of The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we're going to discuss cannabis and integrated healthcare. We'll learn that confidence is a skill. We'll hear about the ins and outs of entering into the edibles market. And we'll find out what to do when the circumstances change in the care of your loved one. But first, a little bit of business. Are you one of the many Canadians dealing with chronic pain, anxiety, IBS, and other such conditions? Are you interested in finding out more about your options with medical cannabis? Then join one of 22,000 patients nationwide who've let Harvest Medicine be their trusted cannabis healthcare partner and provider. It's never been easier to access Harvest Medicine's healthcare team, education, and resources. Simply download the HMED Connect app from the Android and Apple stores and book your appointment today. To find out more, visit hmed.ca or download the app. That's HMED Connect from your app store. Shaker Parmar has over 15 years of experience as an entrepreneur, lawyer, and design thinker. He's the CEO of Harvest Medicine and the Chief Strategy Officer at Vivo Cannabis. As CEO of HMED, he led the company to become one of the fastest-growing, highest-rated cannabis clinics in the country, attracting over 22,000 patients in under two years. As the CSO of Vivo Cannabis, Shaker plays an integral role in evaluating the merger and acquisition opportunities and charting the strategic direction of the company. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Good, Jamie. Thanks for having me on again. I love having you on the show because your knowledge of the cannabis industry and your candor are just so refreshing. And and today we'll start by discussing the role of medical cannabis in integrated healthcare. All right? Sounds good. It's always a pleasure to be on. And this is a, a topic that's actually very near and dear to my heart. So happy to be here. How so? Well, I mean, I think it's what, you know, cannabis as a medication has been misunderstood for so long, and it's precisely because of some of the things I think we're going to talk about today, that it's not as clear-cut, it's not as concise in terms of its understanding as sort of traditional Western medication has been. Yeah. You know, I'll give you an example. I mean, our approach to traditional pharmacological approaches in Western medicine is that, hey, we've got this new molecule, we've got this new compound, and we've studied the heck out of it, so we know exactly what it does in this one little way. But the more and more we learn about the human body, the more we realize how everything is so interconnected. And that just treating symptoms leads us to, I guess, where we are in society today, where chronic illnesses are so prevalent because we're not treating the underlying causes 
And we're not really about wellness. We're not about disease prevention. We're about symptom treatment. And that's a very, very different ballgame. I think cannabis has a really important part to play in that wellness segment. I agree. I think, you know, having been through it with family members, I think we focus or our medical industry focuses on perhaps quantity of life, extending our life, but not necessarily the quality. And, you know, for obvious reasons, can't really help us with how we actually live within our wellness, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, the, the story of that is, is, you know, quite personal. So my journey into medical cannabis in some ways began with my mother, who was suffering from fibromyalgia, yep. from arthritis, and from Crohn's. And so what was happening with her is that, you know, again, the, the traditional pharmacological approach was, hey, let's treat each of those things separately. Here's a concoction of all this medication. And P.S., all the pain medication you're going to take is going to be really bad for your stomach. But don't worry, we'll give you more pills to treat what's bad for your stomach as yeah, a result. Exactly. And so she was on this concoction of you know, about 14 medications every day and actually not living a great life and having a pretty you know, poor quality of life. After about five or six years of being in that scenario, you know, we decided as a, as a family that it was time to look at other alternatives. And so we, we started her with, you know, we, we saw that, hey, you know, CBD as a, as a part of the cannabis plant has a great anti-inflammatory effect. And we know a lot of her conditions were kind of inflammatory in nature. So why don't we, you know, start her off on a high CBD dosage? It's got really no side effects. She's not going to get high from it. It's all going to be good. And, you know, within six weeks, she went off four or five different medications and had a slice of pizza for the first time in 10 years. Wow. And that's the kind of stuff that, you know, we, we hear stories like that all the time at the clinic. And that's what's addressing it is that suddenly you had a medication in your system that was tackling on the underlying causes of a lot of these things. I mean, it's not, you know, I, I want to be cautious. It's not, a, it's not snake oil. It's not a cure-all. And it's not going to work universally for all people. Right. It's like any medication. But the benefits are that there's so few side effects. There are so few drug interactions that for the vast majority of people, this is something that they really ought to try. Yeah. And, and let's start contextualizing it. So cannabis is particularly suited for a more integrated approach to healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. And, and let's talk about what do we mean by integrated healthcare and, and what is cannabis's role or potential role within it? Sure. So I mean, integrated healthcare is really an approach that understands that your body is connected on various levels and that you can't just treat one part or one symptom without considering the entire system and its approach. And to consider healing that entire system and its approach, you also have to think about other approaches than purely pharmacological, you know? So for example, for some people, things like sleep management can be critical. And sleep management may not just be achieved through taking a sleeping pill. You may have to look at lifestyle choices, right? We know things like weight loss have a great impact on a wide variety of things in your life, right? Decreasing the inflammation in your gut can really have a positive impact on, uh, you know, the, the negative hormone stimulation that's going on in your, neuro, in your neurological pathway. Right. So it's so connected, and we're really only in the last 10, 15 years in Western medicine trying to take that approach and bring it to our pharmacological approach, whereas cannabis is this compound, this plant, that's got over 144 
medical ingredients floating around in it, and we don't fully understand, honestly, how those 144 are working together and how they totally impact your body, but the results are very positive so far. Right. So cannabis is suited to integrated healthcare because of a number of different reasons, right? I mean, you touched upon it. It's got, you know, the various medicines floating around in it, but it's also, it's cost efficient too, isn't it, as a treatment? Well, it's cost efficient. I think and to say, like, you know, like, what does it do? So for, like, a lot of people, they'll have a number of benefits from that same medication, right? right. So they will suddenly have less inflammation, but, you know, they'll also feel better about their life. Like, they'll have you know, a sense of euphoria. They may have less anxiety. You know, so when you take this as something to treat something, it's, it's really touching a lot of the peripherals that help reinforce a more positive outcome. If you're feeling good about what's happening, you're more likely to continue your treatment. I agree. So for those listeners who are just sort of tuning in for the first time, you know, we, we've covered medical cannabis all sorts of different ways, but maybe we can talk about the sorts of symptomology that cannabis can really be helpful with, both emotional and physical? Sure. So, I mean, I mean I, you know, we have some great data that we're generating on this topic at Harvest Medicine. We really believe that we need to, you know, our, our obligation is to collect this data so we can kind of move that bar forward and show people what's happening. And so the yeah. biggest symptoms that we see being treated and treated very, very effectively for people are things like anxiety, yep. are things like chronic pain, whether that's coming from arthritis or, or other sort of muscular pain. Chronic pain is extremely well treated. Of course, it's really good for any kind of side effects arising out of chemotherapy and treatments of that nature. And it's also been quite good for conditions where, you know, people kind of at the end of their ropes, fibromyalgia being a big one, where, you know, traditional pharmacological approaches just haven't been that effective for a lot of people. And they're finding things like cannabis to be much more effective. Access to medical cannabis historically has has proven a bit of a challenge for some. Is that changing and how can access sort of impact this notion of integrative health? I think it is changing, Jamie. You know, I think the biggest challenge in the past has been that the vast, vast majority of physicians out there have never looked at cannabis in med school, certainly. And then post-med school, you know, the the information hasn't necessarily been presented to them in a manner that was persuasive. With that said, you know, I think this is why, of course, clinics like ours exist, is that you actually have to have physicians and medical professionals who have done their research, thought about everything, and have seen enough patients to to really figure out how, how to use this as medication. Right. So it can be quite challenging. One of the biggest challenges with cannabis as a medication is that it doesn't impact two people the same way. The same strain or cultivar, the same dosage, uh, two different patients may have two different impacts. And that's very alien as a concept. In, in Western medicine. Doctors don't like to have a notion of this is out of my control. But, you know, it's this kind of what I call sort of self-directed healing. It's about you taking charge of this is the medication I'm going to take. I'm going to record and track how different strains and cultivars made me feel. And I'm going to try to figure out what are those compounds that are treating my, my illness and how do I get it. And access, I mean, has never been easier than it is today in many, many ways. You've got cannabis clinics everywhere. You've got a number of online options, including ours, Harvest Medicine Connect, which you can get in an app store. Yep. I mean, then you can have your consult right from your comfort of your own home. So the big key, though, is that there isn't necessarily a lack of information about cannabis out there. There's a lack of good, concise, understandable information. Yeah. And I think, you know, you, you touched upon something interesting there. 
now with the way medicine works is, you know, your doctor tells you to take pill A and maybe you're taking it three times a day. And, you know, you may note what side effects there are and there may be a list of side effects, but, you know, it's very mechanical, right? Like you mm-hmm. do, your, your doctor prescribes, you do. What you're talking about with cannabis, it's a process that involves the patient. And I think the patient needs to be able to sort of monitor themselves how they're feeling, how the cannabis is interacting with their particular symptomology so that they can make those changes. Maybe it's a different strain that they need to take, or maybe they need more CBD or less, or maybe they actually need THC to help the CBD more be more effective. But it's a process as opposed to sort of a, a mechanical, this is what you do now, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the other big thing to keep in mind is an example that I think people relate to quite well is that, you know, we all know people who can have a bottle of wine and you can't tell they've had anything to drink. And we all know people who can have half a glass and there might be three sheets to the wind. Yeah. And cannabis is the same way where you can't really say take X number of milligrams and you're going to feel, you know, Y result. So we like to make sure that people achieve what we call the you know minimum viable dosage. What is the least amount of medication you can take to achieve the results you're looking for? And that's good for you, and that's economically feasible, and that's really the approach that, that I think you know people need to take towards cannabis. Yeah, and that process, that isn't going to happen with one consult, right? Like this is, I wouldn't say it's trial and error, but essentially it's a synthesis. It's a process where you get to the point where you've got the right dosage, correct? It is very much a process, and that's the other thing I think patients really need to be aware of. Like, unlike taking an ad bill or something, you know, where you take a pill and you can feel the impact right away. With this kind of cannabinoid-based therapy, you kind of have to commit to a path of, you know, four or six weeks where you're just trying it and you're moving your dosage forward because you start off at a, a very, very low dosage, right? I mean, for, for CBD, for example, the starting dosage that our clinic recommends to people is about one one thousandth of the, you know, the maximum daily dosage that people should have. Oh, wow. So, so it really does, yeah. You know, it's not to say should have, but could have. Right. And so really it's about titrating yourself up to a level that makes sense for you. You know, unfortunately, cannabis is still not covered as a medication. So the, the cost factor is somewhat important. You know, with something like CBD, if it was covered, I bet you the initial starting off doses would be significantly higher. I think you're so we're right. Trying to help, <laughs> we're trying to help save people money. Right. That makes sense. And I presume issues like age, sex, your body weight are all going to impact on how much you should be taking of each, right? Uh, yeah. Not only those factors, it's actually also genetic markers that also impact your, your how you metabolize cannabis. So one of the things we oh, started really? doing in the last... Yeah, it's one of the things it's been really fascinating we started doing at Harvest Medicine about a month ago is we're actually running genetic testing in the clinic itself. So we can, we can take a cheek swab and get results within about 45 minutes to an hour that will let us know, hey, are you in a group of people who have specific genetic markers that make you more, A, susceptible to the effects of cannabis, and B, put you in a higher risk profile for things like memory loss and other cognitive impairments? Because people do have different reactions to it, and you may have a genetic predisposition, just like some people do with alcohol. Hmm. When you share this information with people, are you finding that they are accepting of these differences, or are they taken aback by them? 
No, I think they're very accepting. So I think people want to know, it's like, oh, you know, my, my five friends all did this, and they didn't have this kind of yeah, reaction. The apocryphal I, friend, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right. Am I weird? Like, did I do something wrong? And, we, you, you know, you have to kind of reassure them and say, no, no, no. Like, it just impacts everybody differently. There is no right or wrong with this. It's about what works for your body and what doesn't. And that really, you know, brings us back to this wellness approach as opposed to this hardcore medical science approach where it's like, no, no, no. You know, for this pill to be approved, it must do X to every individual that we see, right? So, yeah. And this is different. Because this is recognizing that people have different bodies, different systems, different metabolic, you know, actions in their body that impact their approach with cannabis differently, and we should treat it as such. Other than doing interviews like this, are there other ways in which you and the other companies are trying to get to the public to explain to them that this is the way cannabis works and it's different than the pharmaceuticals they may be used to? You know, so approaching the public is actually very difficult because of the regulations about yeah. what can be communicated and what right. can't be communicated. So yeah. we're kind of stuck in a scenario where, you know, we can certainly put the information out there, but we, we can't promote it overly because, uh, you know, Health Canada and the other regulatory bodies say, look, you really shouldn't be promoting the use of cannabis. And I and I know you're a lawyer and you don't want to be offside, right? You know, you and me both, we have to watch ourselves, right? Exactly. But in addition to those challenges, and this is really, we only have time for one more question, and that is, other than the challenges, there are opportunities for medical cannabis that are driven by the fact that it isn't like the pharmaceuticals that we're used to, right? Absolutely. I think the medical segment in cannabis is going to go through explosive global growth in the next 10 years. We have you know, more and more research coming out on a daily basis that's indicating and highlighting and evaluating various different cannabinoids and their impact. One of the points I'd like to make is that, look, there's over 144 cannabinoids that we know of today. We don't even have names for most of them. Yet, when we, you know, start identifying these cannabinoids and how they impact things like cancer cell cultures, we note that some of the ones we haven't even named are the ones that are the most effective at doing those things. So over the next 10 years, we're going to start naming some of these. We're going to start studying them in more detail. We're going to understand the complex interactions between those compounds. And I think eventually we will make great formulations and compounds in a traditional pharmacological approach that take advantage of this great plant and its health benefits. Well, that is certainly optimistic, and I look forward to that future. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks, Jamie. Always a pleasure. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to hear how confidence is a skill on the tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services, and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group seeks out the finest urban neighborhoods and designs projects to allow its residents to enjoy the benefits of both their property and the exceptional locations that they become a part of. The team surrounds itself with leading professionals and consultants and pushes them to conceive great places to live, to work, and to play. 
The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. For more information, please visit thebenvenuto.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Carlisle Jansen is the founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality shop and workshop centre in Toronto. And she's the producer of the Toronto International Porn Festival. She's also the author of two books, including Sex Yourself. You can watch her TEDx Toronto talk and educational videos at carlislejansen.com. And you can reach her at carlisle at goodforher.com. Welcome back to the show. Hi again. In the January issue of Tonic, you wrote a great article about personal confidence and sex. Yes. And so that's what we're going to explore today. In January, everyone sort of focuses on resolutions like, you know, weight loss and fitness. And right. They're obsessed about the way they look and, yeah. and, and making those kind of changes. but. Your article suggests that we should also be looking to love ourselves, to sort of be confident in in what we have already, right? Yeah, I think there's so much focus on um, my body's not right. And it's about trying to achieve some unnatural, unrealistic, and often unhealthy standard of what we think a body should look like, as opposed to saying, you know what, I'm going to start with accepting my body where it's at. There's always room. We can always be healthier, right? Yeah. We can always eat better. We can often exercise more. We can do things that look after ourselves a little bit better. But instead of focusing on the negative, let's right. focus on acceptance to start with. And I think that's a much more effective and positive way of embracing better health for you know the year and beyond. I agree, but we're not we're not supporting self delusion, right? No, you, you no, saw, no, you saw, no. Everybody still has to put in the effort. Yeah, I think, absolutely, right? absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's not about deluding yourself, but it's about saying, you know what? I can love my body, and what things do I want to? If I want to have resolutions, let's talk about goals that I want to achieve in terms of you know my eating, my fitness, that kind of thing. Right. So, what can we do to love ourselves? What does that really mean practically? Well, sometimes it's about how we carry ourselves. It's about how we. Stand. It's about how we look at each other. It's about how we walk in the world. Um, not necessarily just what our physical appearance is. And I don't know about you, but I've met so many people who don't fit that stereotype or what you're supposed to see on the cover of magazine. And, you know, they're they're strong, they're curvy, you know, they're tall, they're short, and they carry themselves as though they own the world and that they're sexy and they're taking up space. And people who are thin and you'd think should feel confident about their bodies, but they're hiding in their clothes and they're cowering in the corner. So I really feel that it's about how we project ourselves rather than anything about what we actually look like. Okay, so let's sort of explore how you go about that if it just doesn't come naturally to you. And, and, and the first step that you talk about in the article is focusing on the positive, right? Yes, yeah. And so um, I spoke actually to Luna Matatas, who is uh, one of the facilitators of Good For Her, and um, she does a lot on body confidence. And she suggested that we need to, yeah, focus on the positive and look at what do we like? You know, do I like my smile? Do I like my eyes? Do I have soft skin? Focus on what we enjoy. What physical things do I know that I enjoy? Do I love that I can feel pleasure? Do I love that 
I can communicate pleasure? Do I love that I can have orgasms? Do I love that I can walk places and and that my body serves me in those kinds of ways? And ask your partner, what do you think is sexy about me? And believe them. So often our partners will tell us, especially as women, you know, I think you're hot. I think you're sexy. No, no, you're just lying or you just want to get out of my pants or you're, you know, you're just saying that. No, believe them. Like, what is it that you actually find sexy? And and take it to heart. Trust them. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you know, obviously there is something there or your partner wouldn't be with you in the first place, right? There there has to be some baseline attraction. Yeah, Yeah, There has to be something. I'm told I have a nice nose, for example. Right. There you you go. There you go. So I have to work my nose, right? I have to make it work. Okay, so not everything we have is positive, right? I sure. mean, we're all, none of us are perfect. Yep. And, and there's yeah. things we'd all like to improve sure. or things that we're self-conscious about. Yep. So how do we address that? What do we do? Well, one of the first things is to break down the negatives. We have all these automatic thoughts that when we look in the mirror, it's, you know, oh, I have too many wrinkles. I'm too fat. I'm, you know, not this you, enough. We may not have the right hairline, for example. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and sometimes it's things like, you know, maybe your nipples point in different directions or right. uh, you have scars on your body or you feel like you have cellulite, like whatever it happens to be, right? And so don't go to those automatic places because um, they're kind of on auto repeat. They just keep saying over and over and over again. And notice them and break them down. Who says I'm too fat? Why are they saying I'm too fat? You know, often it's the dieting industry that wants me to buy their products. And sometimes it's like, well, what does that mean if I'm fat? So what if I'm fat? Like, that's okay. Does that mean I'm not worthy of love? Everybody's worthy of love. True. Why can, who's to say that I'm not deserving of any kind of pleasure? So, you know, again, like you said, not deluding yourself. Yeah, I am fat. Okay, so I'm fat. That's okay. You know, I can still love myself. I can still appreciate my body. Uh, maybe I want to live a healthier lifestyle if I don't, but that applies no matter what your size is. You know, what I said before, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt because, yeah. I, you know, I've struggled with my weight my entire life. Right. And, and my proclivity is, is to be overweight. So I'm certainly not saying don't be delusional. Right. I, I don't mean that you can't love yourself if Absolutely. you're carrying an extra few pounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That being said, if you know that you have a proclivity to gaining weight, you can't just let yourself go. At some point, there's a tipping point where, you mm-hmm. know, you have to say to yourself, okay, I have to put in some effort, you know, to, to make myself even to feel good about yourself, not for anybody else, right. but just because if you're feeling healthy, it helps you feel confident, right? Surely. Yeah. When I eat well and I'm exercising, I mean, I find exercise is the biggest aphrodisiac. 100%. And I feel good for a couple of days afterwards. I just, I feel strong. I feel proud. I feel good. And I walk differently. And so even if it's like, just, you know, walk a little bit further every day, you know, if you have to drive to get to work, park a little bit further away or go for a walk at lunchtime, you know, instead of going out for drinks, go for a walk on the beach, whatever it happens to be. Try and incorporate health more into your life uh, because other than those who are really obsessed with exercise and doing too much of it, you know, or obsessed with food, most of us could stand doing a little bit more. I agree. And, and, you know, there's an even direct sort of correlation between the physical activity. You don't just emotionally feel better about yourself. You physically feel sure, better. I mean, you know, like absolutely. they talk about the runner's high, yeah, but, yeah. but you can get it in other ways, maybe oh, not yeah. to the same extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, if you pump iron, if you even do a little bit of weights, I, right. I, I, to give an example, my wife, we exercise together. And, oh, that's lovely. And we, we take the strength class yeah. and she really likes yeah. 
lifting the weights. Not yeah. because she's lifting huge amounts, yeah, yeah. but just because it's kind of an empowering yeah, thing sure. to be lifting those weights, right? Absolutely. And that sort of confidence carries over to all sorts of different aspects of absolutely. your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and is healthy for you. <laughs> 100%. So... How else can we embrace what we don't feel terrific about, you know, other than sort of breaking it down? What's the next step? Well, I often say to get your partner involved. And if you have a partner, ask them, what do you find sexy about me? And and as I said, believe them and ask them to like send positive messages and just touch those parts of our body that they love or ask them to embrace the parts of our body that we don't love so much. And Luna Matatas was saying, you know, that that can really go a long way to healing and embracing. And sometimes it's about faking it till you make it, but that's okay. And really allowing ourselves to take in that, yeah, that is, somebody else finds that sexy. If I can embrace that, then I can take that on. And I think those positive messages help us to then make positive decisions. I agree. Other than having sort of the extrinsic support of our partner, we also have to look internally too, right? I mean, we, we also have to consider maybe our concept of what sexy isn't necessarily true. I mean, there's more than one kind of sexy, right? Absolutely. And I used to always try and conform to, you know, what a woman was supposed to look like. And I always, it never felt right. So part of it is redefining what feels sexy to you and finding your own style. So, you know, maybe you're somebody who is fat. Well, look at healthy, positive, fat images of hot, sexy people. Look at what they're wearing. Try different styles. If it's that you feel short, like what are other sexy short people doing? What are some different ideas? Find your style because if you feel good in your own skin and you feel confident and sexy in your own style, that's what is going to exude the sexiness to someone else. And that's what's going to make you feel stronger. And that kind of sexiness that you project out is really infectious. And I find that other people start to notice that and they're like, wow, you do look really hot. You do look really good. You do look really strong and in your body. And that's attractive. Yeah, I agree. And and I guess one thing we should consider, and it's really sort of the last point that we have time for, is these changes don't necessarily happen immediately. No. You, could, you know, it's going to take a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're a person who isn't sort of comfortable in their own sure. skin, yeah. you, you know, tomorrow it, it isn't going to be a sea change, no. but you kind of have to work towards it, right? Yeah. And Luna talks about how she still struggles with it. She's been working with it for years and that that's okay. And again, fake it till you make it. Little steps, try and embrace yourself a little bit more, give yourself one more positive message and it will start to snowball. Fantastic. Thank you for coming in this morning. It's always a pleasure. We're going to hear back from you next month about the connection and factors of sexual satisfaction and relationship satisfaction, right? Yes. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. Neal Brothers Foods, owned by brothers Chris and Peter Neal, was started in their mother's Aurora kitchen 30 years ago. 
Today, the Neal Brothers are known to provide quality, better-for-you snacks that contain easy-to-read ingredients while still being extremely tasty. In addition to their line of products, Chris and Peter own and operate one of the leading boutique distributors of Eastern Canada, carrying brands such as La Croix, Kicking Horse Coffee, and Coslick's Canadian Mustard. Recently, Neal Brothers Foods announced a partnership with Up Cannabis in a joint venture to provide the market with edible products. For more information on Neal Brothers Foods, please visit their social channels at Neal Brothers. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. My next guest, Peter Neal, together with his brother Chris, own and operate Neal Brothers. Peter oversees Neal Brothers brand development, marketing, and sales. In this role, he leads partnerships, sales, distribution, and all marketing and communication activities. Just this past summer, in celebration of their 30th anniversary, he and Chris went on a coast-to-coast trip delivering 30 acts of goodness to deserving Canadians. When away from his desk, he relentlessly pursues the world looking for what's next in the food industry to delight Canadians. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? Good morning, Jamie. I'm great. How are you doing? Good. I love connecting with you because you always seem to have your finger on the pulse of the Canadian food market. When <laughs> I, yeah, when I when I heard you were partnering with a cannabis producer, I knew that I had to get you on the show to discuss, you know, what's coming down the pipe. So, what made you to decide to involve the Neil Brothers brand with ed- the edibles market? That's an interesting choice. You know, I've long been a fan of cannabis. <laughs> um, I, I, I long feel like it's been demonized for, for far too long, and I think for all the wrong reasons. And I'm you know, certainly proud always to be a Canadian and certainly proud in these high times that yeah. uh, you know, our um, liberal government has uh, made the choice to do the right thing with cannabis, legalize it. And, you know, I, I think, you know, being in a, in a position that my brother and I are fortunate to be in, where, whereby we are able to bring food to Canadians, and we've advocated for all sorts of great changes in food. Back in the early part of uh, our career, back in the late 80s, we were doing things that others weren't doing by ensuring that, you know, we didn't have artificial flavors and colors. We didn't have MSG. We didn't have, you know, a lot of the traditional bad oils that were being used at the time. And we were advocates for things like uh, organic and fair trade and non-GMO all along the way over the 30 years. And we felt that we were in a position to be able to advocate positively for cannabis by, you know, infusing really good food and, and producing a meaningful, well-curated line of edible foods and with, with cannabis and do it in a, in a, I think, in a way that very few are doing it, um, whether it be on the gray or black market in Canada, the U.S., or certainly on the, um, on, the, on the legal market in the states that it's currently available in a legal manner in the United States. And we've traveled extensively throughout the states and, you know, seen what's available, certainly and, you know, sampled a fair bit of it and uh, <laughs> and realized that, you know, I think we can do something that is very different than what's currently out there. So one, uh, the, the folks at New Strike or Up Cannabis approached us and we heard what their vision was and we got to a sense of what, you know, what they were all about as, as a company and as people. And we quickly realized that we were really aligned on, um, yeah, I think our outlook on life and morals and values and a lot of things really aligned in terms of our philosophy on what we liked about um cannabis and, and the potential um, infusion with food. So we thought about it for about two and a half minutes <laughs> and quickly agreed to partner with these amazing folks at uh, Up Cannabis. 
Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. So what's the plan? What's the timing? When will we see Neil Brothers products or Neil Brothers backed products coming out? Well, everything is certainly pointing with the government to, you know, late October, sometime in November, maybe of 2019, mm-hmm. you know, to have food products legalized, edible food products legalized. And, you know, we really hope that um, we will have been able to put together, you know, again, a really smart, meaningful, well-dosed, that's a huge part of what we want to do, line of, of good food. You know, I think in terms of edibles, we've seen a lot of, you know, THC or CBD forward products with, you know, some semblance of food as a delivery model. Uh, and we want to change that. We want really good food with really good, well-dosed cannabis infusion through our partners at Up and produce something that overall just speaks to, you know, who we are and what we are. You know, yep. a good food that people enjoy that's healthy. And, you know, in this case, um, we'll give them, um, you know, an added benefit of, you know, sense of well-being and, you know, relaxation and a lot of things you'd get out of a glass or two of wine at the end of a day. And, and we really want to help normalize and destigmatize that um, thinking that, you know, marijuana, pot, and, you know, it's all about stoners and high. And it's it's not. There's so much more to it. Um, and, and we hope to be able to, you know, communicate that to Canadians. So can you speak to what sort of product lines you're you're working on? Well, you know, 50% or so of the market in the U.S. currently, um, with about 18 months running of, of data, legal data, you know, definitely shows in the confectionery side of things. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's been done wrong in a lot of a lot of cases. Yeah. So, I, you know, if we were to do confectionery, um, it would be done in the way we would do it with really good quality ingredients and great taste forward, again, with a meaningful infusion. But it could be some idea of, of, of you know, kind of what we've done in the past with snack. Um, you could see oils and, um, you know, we, again, it'll be food that has to be ambient temperature, has to be shelf stable. That's part of the regs and done in a way that I think consumers can enjoy the food product. So, you know, um, last week we were in San Francisco, we tried pretzels. They had 10 pretzels in a bag, but they were these tiny little bit the size of, you know, your finger. Right. Um, and that was your full dosage. And I, I think we can do better. You know, if, if we're, if we we're going to do something like pretzels, we'd probably do, you know, 10 with one milligram each, for example. So microdosing beyond what people are currently doing for microdosing, I'd, I'd like to go really, really low, let people have a handful of, of a food product so they actually feel like they're eating something and they can enjoy it and, and go really super slow with their dosing and, and become comfortable with the experience and, and the type of relaxation that they get or the type of high, if you will, that they will get out of it as opposed to saying, hey, you know, I want one or two or three pieces of chocolate, but you know, man, that's going to put me on a couch for the next day or two. And that's yeah. not cool. Yeah, no, exactly. You have to be careful with edibles. But are you obliged to package as like individual type portions? I guess you can't, like you can't put out, for example, a big bag of chips because the dosage has to be so regulated that you wouldn't know whether there were three or four or five doses in there if you had a big bag, right? Like it all has to be individual. We we can't do that. And and currently in the U.S., your whole package that you can buy, one retail unit that you can buy is regulated to a maximum of 100 milligrams. And, you know, with each dose. So for a chocolate bar, if you had 10 scored pieces of 10 milligrams per serving, that's the dosage that's being recommended. We are also in Canada, the draft regulations so far are showing that uh, minimum or a maximum dosage is going to be 10 milligrams of of THC. Right. But the Canadian government's also saying that 
you know, that's the total size of your retail selling unit as well, which I think we can, you know, hopefully weigh in on that before February 20th, which is when we have, and we will get to Ottawa and we will speak our minds and, and, and work with the Canadian government, who I think have done an amazing job, a very methodical, smart, slow progression into it so we don't scare people off. But I think we can also look at things like environmental issues and say, hey, you know what, that's just, that's far too much packaging to be putting around one selling unit, 10 milligrams. To someone's going to, if someone enjoys that amount of consumption, they're then buying 10 packages, right. which is a lot of packaging when you consider the child-resistant efforts to be put into place to ensure that, that package is safe and secure. When you multiply that over, over, over 10, it is an egregious amount of wasteful and, and harmful environmental packaging. Yeah, and I actually like your idea with the microdosing because that, you know, then your packaging will look more voluminous, right? Like, so right. what's inside will be more inviting than, you know, let's say one or two gummies or something along those lines. Well, uh, you know, my brother and I aren't, aren't solely focused on uh, margin and bottom line. We've never operated our company that way. If we had, we would have, you know, we would have had a very different set of food products. For I, I, There's a lot of easier ways to make money. So we understand, you know, hey, we're, we're relatively speaking to what we're about to get into. The margins are going to be far greater than, than what we're currently used to with food. So, But we don't need to be overly greedy about it. We can give consumers a bigger package with smaller dose and allow them to actually enjoy the food and control their experience. As soon as they announced legalization for recreational cannabis, I thought the big winners would be the snack food companies. I mean, I think you're all, whether you did this for it or not, I think you're already a winner with the legalization, but with everybody having the munchies, which is real, I think you guys could do very well. Uh, yeah, thank you. What's your role in this process? So I know you have partners on the cannabis side. What What are you going to be doing specifically? Well, we'll be helping to weigh in for sure on best practices for food manufacturing, and 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 furthermore, ensuring that anything that we create is in our partnership, and our partners are completely aligned with us. Take into account food ingredients. You know, we certainly like to find the best ingredients we can find while you know making that that happy balance between really super tasty and, and, you know, quote-unquote healthier than food products. So if we can curate a line of products that are mindful of things like sugar, we you know, I, I think cutting down on, on sugar and sodium and ensuring that there's actually some, some real food, some whole grains, some functional foods that are easy enough to include, but a lot of people don't think to include them. So just being smarter about our ingredients. So Chris and I and our team will, on the food side and our food development team, will make sure that that food product is good as it can be. And then also that it works well with the infusion. So, you know, again, whether it's a high sugar or I don't think that that's a smart thing. We've seen a lot of that in, in some of the U.S. edible products, and I don't know what that does right now and to the whole metabolization and, and what that does to the early or speedy onset or the longevity of the high. You know, if you've got too much fat in the product, what that does to, you know, extend the, the, the amount of time that someone is feeling the effects of cannabis. So we want to make sure that uh, with our team, that we have really good ingredients that work really well with the infusion in order to give consumers the ultimate experience. Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll hear all about what to do when the circumstances change in the care of your loved one on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. 
They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. At Caregiver Services Limited, we specialize in 12 to 24-hour private care for seniors in private homes, hospitals, or facilities. We provide the highest level of customized service for families looking for a caregiver or personal support worker. To ensure the highest quality of care and support, we limit the number of clients we service. Whether you're looking for general live-in care or have more significant needs related to mobility issues, dementia, or palliative care, finding someone who's a great fit is most important. At Caregiver Services Limited, our highly experienced staff specialize in meeting the unique needs of 12 to 24-hour care. For more information, please visit caregiverservices.ca. Let our family help care for yours. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. My next guest, David Bernstein, graduated from the Schulich School of Business with an MBA in 1992. He worked in marketing and senior management with Procter & Gamble and Reckitt Binkieser in Toronto, Tel Aviv, Amsterdam, and London. Following in the footsteps of several family members, David entered into the seniors' healthcare field, acquiring Caregiver Services Limited in 2014. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jamie. Good morning. So your expertise is in helping families cope with care for their loved ones. And part mm-hmm. of the challenge of the care is not only that it's largely unknown to people and, until they have to deal with it, but also that the situations can change over time. And it's a dynamic situation. So starting at the beginning, like when do people call you? What does it look like? There are typically three sort of themes of the people who call us. The first is sort of the more serious. It's event driven. Yeah. Something's happened. Somebody's fallen. They're in the hospital. And obviously the priority is what's going on in the hospital and getting them better. But when they're starting to think about going home, the social worker, the discharge planner, they all get together with the family and somebody tells them, oh, by the way. You got to have this, this, this and this, right? You know, either you're staying home from work for the next month or you need to, you know, get a professional. Or in some cases, you're not capable of doing what's required. You need care at home. And it always strikes me as odd. They wait until that exit interview. Like nobody's telling you, by the way, you might want to get your ducks lined up because you know, your, your mom or dad or your brother or sister, they're going to be let out of the hospital in a couple of days. And, right. you know, well, to be fair, when people go into the hospital, you don't know what state they're going to be in True. as they're improving, especially yeah. for seniors. And so it usually it happens at the end of the process for a reason, because then they have the most information. The second category is you have a private caregiver, for example, maybe it's a nanny that's been part of the family or it's a, it was your cousin's you know caregiver or somebody, somebody, you know, I, somebody, you know, or yeah. came well referred, but it's a private relationship relationship and they've been meeting your, let's say, your grandparent or your parents' needs, but all of a sudden their needs change and that private caregiver may either be insufficient or insufficiently skilled for what the new needs are. Right. And now the family is saying, what do I do? I don't want to get rid of this great person who, who grandma has a re- really loves. Who has a relationship. Right? Yeah. And, and really knows their needs well, but they're not enough. And so we get a lot of calls to help manage that transition right. from sort of private care to professional care. And the third category is where there are small incremental changes to a loved one's circumstance. Right. It could be their mobility, their short-term memory. 
various other things that go on, and there are little hints that things are going in a direction where more help and more tensions needed. And I get those calls from people who are, to their credit, planning ahead, right. describing to me the circumstance today and wondering what might they need in the future and how does that process work, etc. So those sort of the three categories of calls I tend to get. That third situation you're talking about has extra challenges as well because, especially when it comes with family managing the care of the loved one, not everybody's on the same page, right? It's easy when somebody's coming out of the hospital, you can recognize things need to be done. But when it's an incremental change, different people have different opinions as to what the tipping point is, right? And there's no correct answer often. Yeah. When there's a crisis, it aligns everybody's goals, right? Safety, whatever's critical gets taken care of, everyone lines up. But when there's a small incremental change, the individual is trying to come to terms with themselves and maybe not even sharing all the things that they're experiencing. So they're in one headspace. One child may be more conservative and very focused on, I want to make sure that there's lots of care in place or that, you know, someone's paying attention. The other one is more, yeah, but dad really doesn't want help and, you know, it's his life and his choice. Both are correct. And so it can be a uh, complicated emotional process. It does take time, which is often why, you know, people who call us earlier in the process eventually get there. They just may not get there at this when everyone wants to get there. In your experience, when you say like there's little incremental changes, what Mm -hmm. sort of things have you witnessed in your position are the types of incremental changes and which are the ones that are more serious that really people need to sort of pay attention to? So, firstly, it depends on where this the person who might be needing care is living. Right. If they're in an assisted facility, assistant living facility, then there's a lot of safety mechanisms around. Sure. And, and some of the reasons for care might be uh, more companionship oriented. If they're living completely on their own, then the attention to detail needs to be higher because the risks are higher. If they're living with you, there still yeah. may be real risks, but at least you're there. Right. So, Let's take the more serious situation of where the person is living alone. Yeah. Then there's always three priorities, but they're quite sort of apparent here. One is obviously safety. Are they safe? Two is can they continue to live independently? Are they taking their meds? Are they eating regular meals? Are they getting out of bed? Are they you know taking care of personal care, etc.? And the third is quality of life. Are they having a sufficiently rich life or is it getting much smaller being alone at home? And so it's when any of those things seem to be compromised, particularly the safety and the ability to live independently, do you need to really sort of focus on it. As far as safety goes, fall risk is the biggest issue. Right. I was going to say. And so how are they walking? Are they using canes and walkers? Are they using them? You know, quite often, a lot of seniors are told they need to use those things. They use them when they come out of the hospital or there's been an event, but then they want to stop using them because for so many reasons, it's uh, stigma, convenience, Exactly. you know, you know, there's, I mean, think about how silly we were decades ago where no one would wear glasses because it made us look old or whatever. Now glasses are fashion. Everyone has a pair, (laughs) but seriously, there was a period, a very long period where no one would wear their glasses. Yeah. Well, you know, I think there's a, an analogy there for kings and walkers. It makes right. people feel that there's a compromise to their dignity and their independence and their sense of identity. In my experience, most seniors feel one way inside, and that's different than how their body behaves. And it's hard. there's a gap 
between how they feel, how they self-identify of what they're capable of and who they are, and what the practical sort of abilities are. And we've discussed this before. Your view is the senior, the loved one's needs, cares, and desires are paramount in this decision-making, as long as it isn't a dire safety yes, issue, correct? Uh, it's clearly not a black and white issue. Right. I would say the most complicated scenario I deal with is exactly that, where it's pretty clear they would benefit from care, and it's pretty clear they don't want it. Right. Now what? Yeah. And so, you know, reconciling that takes time. Hopefully it does. You don't have to wait until an event occurs. And there's a number of sort of discussions that a family member can have regarding safety, the ability to live independently, and quality of life. Now, the other element that people don't necessarily focus on, which I think is obviously, just as an aside, care costs money. Yeah, It's lovely to talk about it between the two of us, but it's very expensive, you know, at the end of the day for lots of care. And so it's a luxury to talk about the ability to hire a private caregiver and have them spend a lot of time with your loved one. So let's recognize it's not just about whether they want it or not. There's a big financial component to it. So assuming that there's an affordability isn't an issue, When a family member, either a spouse or a child or even a sibling, is heavily involved in that person's care, the relationship, the sibling relationship, the spouse relationship, the child relationship gets much more complicated because now you're a caregiver and their spouse or and their child. Right. And the things that you need to help them with change, especially when it comes to personal care, it changes the relationship and the dynamic. And for some people, that works well. For many people, It is emotionally exhausting, and it doesn't always lead to good communication between the person needing care and the person trying to provide the care. And so when you introduce a private caregiver or a firm that can organize care for you, you begin the process of separating the caregiving from the family relationship. And it allows the family to be family, to spend the time with their loved one doing what they normally do as family, right. not you know making sure the house is clean and they're fed and pestering them about this and that and all the other more sensitive issues. You get to separate those two things. In the later stages of life with seniors, having that quality time and having that time be much more oriented toward the family dynamic, I think think is of great value and you can't get that time back. So if you can afford to have a caregiver and have that person take some of the more difficult roles, I think it enhances those relationships. And also, you know, the toll in doing what is very sort of specialized care, right? Like it's not everybody's up to the task of the type of things that need to be done mm-hmm. and that causes its own stresses and also You know, if one member of the family is taking on that responsibility and the other ones aren't, for whatever reason, proximity, availability, that can cause friction between family members. You know, there's all sorts of negative dynamics that you can avoid by bringing somebody professional into the the picture. And to be fair... In most cases, it is a bit messy. Every situation is different. It needs to be navigated differently. And sometimes you don't get to execute the elegant solution. An inelegant solution is in place until circumstances change again. Okay. So what advice would you have for family members who are starting to see changes in their loved ones, you know, abilities to take care of themselves or or the environment in which they're living. How do you broach the subject and, and what are some things that they can do to sort of ease the process? Let's say, assuming you have a good communicating right, relationship yeah, yeah. with yeah. this loved one, and that isn't always the case, but let's assume that you have the ability to have a level-headed conversation with your loved one about what you're seeing. I think the most important thing is respecting that they are an adult with an independent life of accomplished amazing things, have dignity, and you're talking about their life. 
And so what you need to do first is seek to understand. Ask them how they're doing. If you've noticed things, ask about it. Right. Hear them discuss it. Ask them whether they think that they would benefit from some help. Let them maybe lead the discussion to some extent, but open the discussion up. And also, there's absolutely no harm in suggesting, would you consider a private caregiver? Somebody coming in for a few hours just to sort of, maybe it's once a week for four hours or whatever the appropriate solution would be, but sort of incrementalize into it. Let them experience the benefit of having the pressure off. And also probably, I think it would be helpful to raise the issue, not in a time of crisis, right? Like not when there's been a kitchen fire, but in a quiet moment. Hey, don't you think it would be better instead of spending our time cleaning the house that, you know, you and I have a nice visit and, you know, maybe you need some help with that. I don't think it's inappropriate to share with your parent, for example, that it's really stressful on you too. That, you know, that you're there to do whatever you can, but, you know, mom. Dad, it's exhausting for me, and I have my wife or my my husband or my kids or whatever, and it would be really helpful for me if I knew there was someone here with you. It would give me peace of mind. It would give me a chance to recharge my batteries, and then we could spend better time on the weekend together or whatever it is. So I think there's a, a number of different angles that are specific to the situation, but paramount is respect that it's their life, it's their decision, assuming that they have the competency, and feel free to suggest solutions and begin the dialogue. Fantastic. That's great advice. Thank you for coming on the show today. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can download this episode as a podcast on zoomerradio.ca and thetonic.ca. For articles written by Carlisle Jansen, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighborhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we discuss magnesium, the natural ways to boost your libido, yoga for your heart health, and that age-old question, what are we having for dinner? Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.